Williams here. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Mental Toughness and Body Show. My name is Rob Evans, and I'm your transformation coach, health strategist, and internationally published author, helping take your life and your business, your health, fitness, mindset, and body from where it is that you are right now to where it is that you want to be. And I am joined today with um, Gil Baumgarten from, he's the president of Segment Wealth Managers based in the US. Gil, thank you for joining me today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So Gil, you have a lot of experience, about 38 years from what I picked up on your profile uh, in the um, financial advisory business. Maybe just tell us a little bit about your background and, and what brought you to starting Segment Wealth Management. You know, I was in the brokerage business for 25 years. I worked for uh, UBS and Smith Barney before that and um, learned a lot about investors and investing and how stocks and bonds work and various products like mutual funds and the like. And I just saw investors make a lot of mistakes and I saw the brokerage firms try to line their pockets from some of those mistakes and some bad habits that people had that the brokerage firms, I thought, encouraged them to make even more mistakes. So I decided to uh, go a different route and leave the brokerage industry, take my clients with me, and then you know grow a fiduciary type of advice business where I could be more of an advocate for clients making good decisions as opposed to me marketing to them, which is essentially how the in the U.S. how the brokerage business operates. So we've probably got some differences between how advisors work in the US and Australia, but fundamentally uh, the same. One of the things I picked up um, from you is that you're a, you're a fee-based um, advisory service. So could yeah. you maybe just talk to us a little bit about that? So um, you know, maybe someone is watching this for the first time and they don't necessarily have a financial advisor right now. Um, yeah. I think that's an awesome model, but um, tell us why you've set it up that way. Well, um when I get paid the same way, no matter what you do, the type of, of advice that a client is going to get from me is very different than if the client walks in and I can make 2% if they do this, I can make 1% if they do that. And it's uh, in many cases like a big buffet. Yeah. And when you're in the brokerage business, especially when you first start out, you really kind of focus on the high commission products because yeah. clients are hard to come by. And if you have a a willing suspect there in front of you, you're going to spend your time on the 4% products and not the 1% products. And uh, that's the reason why in the US annuities, for example, and life insurance type products get pitched a lot because they are very high commission yeah. earning products. And you don't have to have as many customers, you don't have as many people to say yes to earn a living doing it. But after you've been doing it for a decade, you kind of see the treachery in that. And after you've been doing it for 20 or 30 years, you really get to a point of indifference where, you know, I don't really care what you do. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to be able to make my living one way or another uh, without, you know, having direct to direct clients in a particular way. And once you can become agnostic in the way you give advice, the way that comes across is much more thoughtful and much more problem solving with regard to the way people perceive it. And therefore they trust you a whole lot more. And that's the reason why I believe that my business has grown by 500% since wow. I started the business just 13 years ago. Uh, I left UBS and took maybe $250 million worth of client money with me. 
And today, my so it's a solo practitioner firm. I have eight employees, but I'm the only advisor. We have $1.3 billion worth of uh, client money. Wow. And I think that's a direct, a direct relationship to how truthful people could tell that I was and how indifferent I was to the way I solve their problems and the guidance that I give them accordingly. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. I think it's a huge red flag if you go and see someone and they say they're commission-based, they just run away um, from, from that person. So I, one of the things that I, I've personally noticed is um, with the, the financial advisor that, I, that I've used, it's the fastest way to build wealth. If you've got somebody, because you just don't know everything, you, you go on doing your thing and you don't necessarily... Uh, understand all the ins and outs of um, particularly tax, you know, what's the the appropriate tax strategy and so forth. Um, uh, I'm assuming that um, uh, you would concur with that, the um, the fastest way to go from, I suppose, where you are to where you want to be financially is you've got to get, I would say, early intervention with the financial advisor and get on the right path as fast as possible? Well, the typical investor is going to go through many, many iterations of themselves. Uh, the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to want to really get on the fast track because somebody who's 30 or 40 years old, who's just getting started, kind of looks at the end of the line and goes, well, I got 25 years left to go. If path A is going to produce a 8% rate of return and trading Bitcoin or you know whatever other craziness can produce these hundred percent rates of return. Just think about how far down the road I can get yes. uh, if I have some early success. Well, they end up getting spanked a time or two by trading stocks or trading Bitcoin or doing crazy things. They get bit by the taxes, and so it's really a matter of just the surviving philosophy is all the things that you've already eliminated uh, because of how bad your experience was. Uh, those things get pushed out of the mix and you find the person is then 10 years older and then is really just getting started because it took them a decade to figure out what not to do. Back to your point, they would have been way better off to have hired a, a financial advisor to sort of show them the ropes and tell them about the mistakes that they were going to make and help them anticipate that and get them further down the road. That's predominantly where the, the value is and being a repository for the worry that a client would otherwise bear upon themselves and yes. the fear and trembling and trepidation that they would approach with each decision where somebody like me is much more understanding of the outcomes and is not going to tiptoe my way through the portfolio construction process like a typical neophyte investor would. Yes. Yeah. Great points. What would you say is some of the common mistakes that people make to prevent them building that long-term wealth? Buying sexy returns as opposed to consistent returns. Um, I could easily, I'm going to speak from a point of US taxation. I don't really understand yes. where yours or how everybody else's domicile is going to affect it. But I promise you, this is how the math works. Under optimal tax circumstances, I could produce an 8% rate of return and have uh, my $10,000 investment turn into a million dollars in a 30 year time period and be completely tax free to me. Under the yes. under the same scenario, you could have the worst possible fee and tax outcome. Uh, let's say it's short-term capital gains and you're in a hedge fund with a 2% management fee and they take 20% of your profits, sexy nonetheless, 
It would take a 22% rate of return from your hedge fund to match the same dollars I'm going to have from my 8% rate of return after fees and after taxes. And many people will look at a hedge fund and go, well, look at these fantastic 18 or 19% returns, yes. which are quite inconsistent, by the way, and they have no concept that that's before fees and before taxes, yeah, and that plotting like in a simple... 8% rate of return is going to produce much more money over a long time period. Yes. It's those types of simple mathematics gymnastics that people uh, get deceived by and end up with a very poor pattern of behavior that they could have uh, chosen a different outcome. Yes, yeah, yeah, great points. What would you say uh, you see is the impact of the, the introduction of, um, you know, artificial intelligence, um, robo-advisors and that kind of thing that is starting to come along now. How do you see that impacting your business and the industry? Alternative, I mean, uh, uh, you know, AI in general will produce some very powerful tools for somebody like me to scale their business. Mm. Imagine if I could just simply have the concept of, I think I should swap my um, NVIDIA shares or Microsoft shares what would be the tax impact across my 1100 account numbers to make that swap? And AI would allow me to quickly sort through all of my accounts uh, and figure out how all of that is going to work for me. We already own software that allows us to sort by a lot of that, but the modeling capability would be very simple for me to take alternative, you know, uh, you know AI um, and turn it into a much more powerful tool. Um, so the, with regard to robo advising, the likelihood that you're going to trust a algorithm that you don't really understand how it's being built, and you're going to subscribe to a service that tries to define that down for you, um, you're going to find not very many very sophisticated investors are going to go that route. It's already starting to show up in the U.S. when robo uh, advising has been a thing for a decade now, and you have uh, companies like Betterment and the like that are really having some difficulties. And as a matter of fact, several of those businesses have been sold at fire sale prices because they just can't build enough scale. Right. And they end, up, they end up with very small accounts. Uh, and frankly, you know, the fees on that type of service can be 25 or 30 basis points, which would be very low. My average fee for a full service wealth management practice is only 56 basis points. So 0.56 is what we charge our typical client, uh, which is really not that much more than a total do-it-yourself algorithmic, non-tax-centric -ta uh, way of doing things. So I just think people are going to trust an individual uh, advisor more they're going to trust some black box, especially so. when the price differential is not that great. Yeah, 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 great points. So, um, so on this show, we like to talk, I, I'm really interested about, um, you know, people's personal journeys and, you know, mental toughness and like what would, gee, I mean, we're probably not that different in, in age. We've gone through, a, you know, a lot of different things, COVID uh, recently, you know, what's happening in the, eco the economy at the moment. What would you say are some of the most significant challenges that you've faced over the, the past 38 years or so in, in your career and in business? Well, you know, I would say that to go back a little bit further, part of the reason why 
I chose to get into the financial advising business is the difficulties I had as a teenager. You know, my parents were divorced when I was 10. My mom's car got repossessed. We just had typical single parent uh, issues from a difficult situation with my mom and my dad. And that sort of motivated me to figure out how money worked. Yeah. I went to a, uh, a public high school here in town that was right in the middle of one of the wealthiest areas of Houston, although I did not grow up in that area. And I made a lot of friends and I saw their parents and how they lived their lives. And I thought, you know, this this money thing is something that I need to learn about. Yeah. And so uh, financial trauma as a teenager is the number one indication in the U.S. of a precursor to somebody being successful in the financial advisory business. Right. Uh, I, I learned that by way of having worked at E.F. Hutton and having done a study for my firm, uh, interviewing the top 100 advisors at the firm about how, you know, where they came from. And that was one of the things that I found most revealing. And it was yeah. two of my life too. Uh, and so, but it, it, with regard to my career, the things that are most difficult for me to stomach are times of super high volatility, like the 2000 market crash, the 2008 market crash, um, you know, the stock market in 2008, 2009 lost 58% of its market value in yeah. 15 if you were invested fully in stocks, you only had 42 cents on the dollar left. If you had liquidated, you still would not be even. Uh, but if you had stuck it out, you would have been even within six years. And then by the 10th year, you would have doubled your money. And so the best rates of return are normally found right on the heels of the worst rates of return. And you really have to stick it out and endure it uh, in order to benefit from that. That happens to also coincide with good tax policy. Uh, because long-term unrealized gains are tax-free at death here in the U.S. So yes. if I have a million-dollar investment that's you know $3 million 20 or 30 years later, if I haven't sold those investments and then I pass away, my family inherits that from, from me without ever having to pay any capital gains taxes. Yes. Uh, so that's an important part of the philosophy of how to think about how to compound wealth. Uh, but that's the answer to your question with regard to the challenging things that I've endured. What, were you in the industry in 87? I was, yes. I was licensed in June of 85. I, okay. went, to work for EF, I went to work for EF Hutton in November of 84. Uh, so I'll have my uh, you know, 40th anniversary uh, next year. So. so was 2008 worse than 87? Oh, way worse. And the right. reason why is that the market crash in 87 was 27%, but it occurred in only one day. And yeah. within about within about six months, the market had recouped that. Whereas in 2008, the market lost 58% of its market value and yeah. it took 15 months. Uh, it was just really devastating. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you had invested your money in uh, you know, 2008, 2009, you would have really had some spectacular rates of return on the heels of that. Yeah. It's just a difficult lesson to learn for the typical uh, investor. And that's the reason why people tend to chase investments around. They want whatever the hot dot is. Yeah. They want whatever, they really only want to do what they should have done a year ago. Uh, yeah. And that, the problem is you'll end up chasing your tail and you'll end up only serving up the worst of what the market has to offer you if you do it that way. But I love what you said um, about from your teenage years. I, I was the same. My mum and dad had very poor monetary mindsets. Um, you know, I mean, when you're a kid, you just ask 
for things or there's food there. I mean, you don't even have the perception of money really. But um, as I got older, I realized that they always, they never really had any of it. They they really struggled. Mum didn't work and dad didn't have a great wage. Um, yep. And that's what motivated me to be not be like that. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I, I kind of, I learned some really bad lessons from my dad. Uh, he He grew up from a divorced family and kind of raised himself on the streets of Galveston. So I don't know if your wow. your uh, audience knows where that is, but it's a suburb of Houston down on the coast. And it's like a shipping community. And it has had some riffraff and uh, some other issues. You know, back in the 20s and 30s, there was a lot of mafia and gangster activity down there. Okay. It was just kind of a tough place to grow up. And my dad grew up basically shooting dice on the streets of Galveston when he was a teenager and never really learned any good habits from his father and yes. sort of grew up sort of feral, sort of wild, um, and uh, just never really developed a lot of good money discipline or discipline in his life in general. And he took a lot of shortcuts in the way he lived his life and was very self-centered as a uh, as a byproduct of that. And when in my younger years, I learned some of those lessons and was kind of self-centered myself, but I saw how much misery came from that, not only in my own life, but how I inflicted that upon others. And I decided to stop doing whatever I learned from my dad and start doing it a different way. Uh, that was in my 20s by that point in time. And then I realized you know, that if I could be the total opposite, people would really trust me. And if I could give them good advice, I could actually make a pretty decent living as a trustworthy advisor. So I really kind of completely changed my stripes in my 20s and learned a lot from my bad habits and my parents' bad habits. Yeah, nice. What would you say has been your greatest failure? And what mm. you learned from that? Oh, my gosh, my greatest failure. Uh, probably learning those lessons too late in life. I could have learned those lessons when I was, a, you know, a teenager, I would have had a, a different uh, outcome earlier in life. So, uh, yeah, I would say that's probably my biggest failure. And and I think failure to manage my career properly, I probably would have made more aggressive decisions in my career earlier in life um, after I had kids and had them, you know, financially, me, me being financially responsible for them really kind of took away my sense of risk appetite. Uh, and I stayed in my brokerage situation far longer than I should have. I would have had, an, I should have had an increased risk appetite and I should have managed my career more aggressively. So that too would be a failing. Yeah, nicely said. Yeah, I, I agree with those from my own perspective. If you were talking to um, yeah, somebody that's either just starting out as an entrepreneur um, for instance, what would you say are some of the, well, it doesn't have to be just starting, it could be just like me right now. What what would be some of the things that you would say, maybe two, three tips that you would say uh, absolutely essential for success? Um, well, taking risk and being well capitalized. Uh, so part of my risk appetite came from the fact that I was pretty well financially set when I started my own business when I was 50. Uh, I would have been right. way better off to have done it when I was 40 because I already knew enough about the industry to mm. have parlayed that and transitioned earlier. I think I would have been better off. Uh, but to be well capitalized, you know, a lot of that just comes from the same lessons you learn in investing is you have to have a willingness to lose. If you do, if you venture into investing and you don't have a willingness to watch your money go down in market value, you'll only stick around until it goes down in market value and then you're going to liquidate. Yes, so that right. means 
the only outcome you're going to experience eventually is a loss uh, because then you're going to liquidate and you're not going to enjoy the rebound. So you really have to teach yourself how to have a risk appetite, uh, have a willingness to endure loss. And that just comes from a lot of soul searching and uh, and just, you know, I guess, positive reinforcement that that is, in fact, the way to generate, you know, better returns and better outcomes over time is uh, just having a willingness to lose. Yeah, sure. Another tip that you would perhaps give for success? Um, well, you know, some, mind, some mindset stuff. So obviously, you sorry to interrupt. Uh, you've obviously gone through you know, a lot of different challenging markets and so forth and your own sort of grit and, and resilience is quite, quite strong. How, what would be something that you could say to people, how you can develop that? Because uh, I see in our, um, our kids that we're not really developing a really resilient um, generation that's following us. So what, how, is, how would you help people develop it? It is very difficult to develop it on your own. It is so much better for it to have been done by a parent. You really have to stress test your own children. Um, my, ch my children grew up relatively affluent and I made it deliberately difficult for them to make sure that they had some tough situations, which is difficult to produce unless you're deliberate about it. Um, my 16-year-old son always thought that he was the master of his universe. And by the time he was 17, he'd already crashed the car a couple of times. And I made him feel the pain of that. Mm -hmm. I made him get a summer job. He did $600 worth of damage to my our family car because he just wasn't paying attention when he was mm -hmm. a teenager. And I made him get a summer job. And then when he when he earned his first $600, I had him show it to me and I snatched it out of his hand <laughs> and told him that he was paying for the damage he had done to the car. And um, he learned some very difficult lessons from that. And so you, you have to create situations where you're testing the resilience of your children. Uh, it's, it's much more difficult to impose that upon yourself without a lot of introspection. And really, you're just going to have to kind of learn what grit and resilience looks like and try to model that. Um, you can also learn it from other people by watching their behaviors. You can subscribe to a lot of Warren Buffett channels. He gives really good advice about developing grit and resilience and okay. things that he's heard and little, you know, tips and words of wisdom. And frankly, I write about it a lot. People can subscribe to my blog um, and they can, you know, subscribe to that. And we write about uh, you know, patterns of behavior and psychology, psychological investing, and then just how taxes work and how investments work, sort of an expose on various ways of looking at investments and money. Uh, so that would be another way to do it. Or the, read my book. There's some there's some topics in there that are along these same lines. Yeah, well, actually, now that you've just mentioned your book, um, let's give it a plug. So it's called Foolish, How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System. Um, and tell us a tell us a little bit about it and how people can grab a copy. Yeah, so it's on Amazon. It's also on Audible. I did the author read okay. version, so you, you can listen to me drone on for about four <laughs> hours as I read the thing. Um, but the first third of the book is really about how the brokerage industry operates in the U.S. and uh, the little dark corners where they make money and they have little gotchas uh, that you would never be able to figure out on your own. They don't uh, adequately disclose. 
where these little gotchas are. And so we sort of uh, have a little expose on how many of those things work, how the ecosystem is built. But then the back two thirds of the book is really about the bad habits that people develop. They don't have grit. They don't have resilience. They can't bounce back. They play these little mental accounting games where they try to put themselves in a position where they can brag to all their friends about how smart they are while they're hiding that from those same friends all the failures that they've had. Yeah. Uh, so there's all these ego things that we do uh, and bad reinforcing patterns of behavior, which if you were much more objective about the way you looked at your world and your pattern of behavior in the past, you would have been much more critical with it. And so it's how there's some tips in there about how to you know, think about things. Um, and so that's really what the back two thirds of the book is of the psychology of successful investing uh, and getting away from bad habits. Yeah, excellent. I mean, so much of what we do in success, and it doesn't really matter the industry, it's around the mindset. I, I'm a, a bit obsessed with high performance outcomes. And I mean, whether it's um, a high performance business person or high performance sports, the principles remain the same. And how yes. you remain mentally tough and um, the difference between, well, let's tennis is probably a good example. You've got um, you know, it's 40 love and the other person's about to, to win the game. It comes down, if you've given up in that point, you will not win. You will not win accidentally. Yeah. Um, yeah. The only way that you're going to win is if you believe that you, you can win. And, and it's those same principles that apply to everything uh, in, in life. And it's the only way that we can, uh, you know, move to that that next level. Yeah, and along those same lines, you know, a lot of people don't think this way, but if you if you think about the stock market, for example, if you looked at all the 12-month time periods, January to December, February to January, you look at all the rolling 12-month time periods for the past 75 years, those rolling 12-month time periods produce a positive rate of return in 81% of all circumstances. Yeah, wow. If you, if you were ever to go to Las Vegas and run across a slot machine that paid off 81% of the time, it, yeah. you would never, you would never, never leave it. You would never leave that slot machine and you would never stop plugging quarters into it. Yeah. And the same concept needs to be understood by people who invest in stocks. It's not a matter of going out and trying to pick some hot stock and seeing how you do or yeah. buying two or three tips from your buddies and seeing how you do. Build a diversified portfolio and those 81% of the time is going to pay off for you is, is what the lesson is to be learned from that. And if you keep your fees and taxes low, your returns are going to be even better. Uh, so I would just say plug a lot of quarters into the machine. <laughs> yeah, such such great advice. I've got two more questions for you. What would you say is the best advice that you've ever received? Oh, mm, I guess about keeping my debts low um, and not leveraging anything that depreciates in market value. You know, buying a car on credit is a really bad idea. Uh, you're really better off by paying cash for a car and then begin to save for your next car. And then after your car wears out after five or six years, pay cash for the next car, as yeah. opposed to trying to go out with very little money and trying to buy the $50,000 car that you have to put on credit. Well, you're going to end up paying seventy-five dollars or $80,000 for that yes. car. Yes. Now, compare, compare that to buying a house on credit where you get $50,000 as a down payment and you go out and finance you know, a half a million dollars to buy a house uh, at a much lower interest rate. And in the US, that interest that you pay is also tax deductible within certain limits. 
but that house is more than likely going to appreciate over time. Yes. So you're going to experience the appreciation on a half million dollar investment, only putting $50,000 on the table and taking a tax deduction for the interest that you paid during those years that it takes to experience that. Now, that's an investment that I can get behind is borrowing money for that. Borrowing money to um, buy a car if you're going to turn it into an Uber I can get behind that mm -hmm. uh, so, or borrowing money to you know, buy a rent house or uh, so leverage is one of those things that uh, is, is not a bad word unless you're using it for consumption in some way uh, and buying a car on credit or taking a vacation on credit. Uh, those types of things I would I would consider to be very bad habits. And those are one of that's one of the uh, pieces of advice that I got when I was younger is don't ever borrow money for anything that's going to go down in value. Yeah, that is great advice. I don't know whether you can do it in the, the US, but here, like that car scenario, people can add a car loan to their mortgage. And mortgages, I think here, I think the highest one's like 32 years now. So people can be paying off that car for 32 years. Uh, and they think, oh, yeah, no, it's only, like you said, $50,000. Really? Do you want to do the sums as to how much you're, no. that's actually costing you? And you've probably changed cars five, five times in that time. That's yeah, you're not allowed to do that here in the U.S. You're only allowed right. to collateralize real estate that way. Um, so, no, I think that would be a, a very bad thing to do, to be adding yeah. a car. You, you know, 30 years from now, you're going to be paying for five cars ago, for that's four right. cars ago, <laughs> cars ago. Uh, you know, that's that, right. sounds like, that sounds like a conspiracy by the banking business. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Um, listen, you've added so much value here today. It's been really great. We can keep talking. Uh, but if people want to get in touch with you, uh, now, I know that uh, a caveat, you only do work in the U.S., but we do have a U.S. audience, but that, that's right, isn't it? You you only work in the, with U.S. Um, clients? Pretty much, pretty much, yes. Yeah, yeah. So how can people get in touch? Uh, they can email me, uh, gill.baumgarten at segmentwm.com. So gill is spelled with one L. Uh, you can Google me and find all kinds of podcasts and other things that I've been on. They can subscribe to my blog. I'm never going to call anybody. We don't sell your list. I'm not doing it as a way to find you and market to you. We don't operate like that. So sign up for our blog. You'll get uh, posts whenever we send them out about tax advice or investing or whatever. Buy my book, if you like, on uh, Target or on Amazon or wherever you want to find it. Um, but that that would be a way to uh, to get information. Or you, you can just email me at my email address, which you can find on my segment wealth management. I'll add, uh, it, uh, I'll add your contact details below the, the podcast post here uh, so that people can, uh, can find you there. Um, yeah, look, I think it's really admirable the, you know, the, how you want to give back to, um, you know, the service where, that you do to pro provide um, people just more advice in, in this really, really tricky space where people, I think, become so scared of it. And you're, you're right that people, the younger generation, I'll dabble with some mates and stuff, but they need this long-term strategy that they can know with confidence that I can sleep at night. I know that you're getting your 8% or whatever. And, um, uh, you know, you're building this wealth for the future. Um, so I really yep. love what you what you're doing in that space and the, and your approach being only fee based and everything. So um, thank you so much for your time today, Gil. It's been an absolute treat talking to you. You too. Thanks for having me. Thank you.